the man of scream. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Man of Screen podcast. I'm your host, Mike Zumo. On this show, we're going to look at every appearance made by the Man of Steel on screen, be it movies, TV, animation, anything. If you can watch it on that box in your living room, we're going to take a look at it. Now first, let me uh, tell you a little bit about myself, my Superman origin story, shall we say. First and foremost, I love Superman. Like another podcaster, Michael Bailey, he is my favorite fictional character. Going back as long as I've been alive. A story my parents like to tell is that my father took me to see, as a two-year-old, Return of the Jedi and Superman 3 in the same year. My mother tried to take me to see Snow White after that, and, well, I wasn't having it. It was Star Wars and Superman. That was all I cared about at that point, and my love of Superman has stayed through, the, uh, through my life. I, uh, one thing my parents did very well, at least my father did, as he's really the driving force in uh, my love of comics, and especially Superman in particular. I was exposed to every type of Superman out there. Obviously, as a kid growing up, I knew the Christopher Reeve movies very well. But also, living in New York City when I was a young child on Channel 9, WWOR out of Secaucus, New Jersey, they played on Saturdays old reruns of the 1950s TV show with George Reeves and... You know, even as a child, I recognized that they were cheesy, but was able to enjoy them for what they were. That's why I think I can appreciate many different versions of Superman. I enjoyed the Man of Steel movie that came out two years ago. I enjoyed Lois and Clark, the animated series. If it's Superman, I can find a way to enjoy it, find good things to drag out of it. Even the uh, Kirk Allen movie serials from the 19, late 1940s and early 50s. So, what we're going to do is I'm going to take a journey for as long as it takes... And I'm hoping you're going to come along with me. We're going to look at, from the beginning, everything that Superman has appeared on, on screen. We're going to start with the Fleischer cartoons. We're going to take a look at those Kirk Allen serials. The George Reeves TV series. The Reeve movies. Lois and Clark. The animated series. And beyond. Maybe not the Superpowers cartoon. I don't know. Even though I loved it as a kid. I tried watching that about ten years ago. I couldn't do it. Well, I'm not going to waste any of your time with senseless preamble so we're going to go right into our agenda which will be the first five fleischer shorts and we'll do that right after this promo stick around starting in december 2015 a new epic mega series trennis magnus punches reality proudly presents Batman v Superman. A 13-part miniseries from Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. John M. Wilson and Magnus shine a spotlight on a crapload of Batman comics and a crapload of Superman comics. All this preparation for the theatrical release of Batman v Superman. Dawn of Justice. And once that's all over... We'll take a five-hour-long look back at 2013's Man of Steel. 
Finally, we will come together again to discuss our thoughts on the Batman v Superman film. So join Magnus and John as they recount the adventures of Batman and Superman in comics. All is preparation for Batman and Superman's first adventure in live-action feature film. The adventure begins in December 2015. Batman v Superman. Only at twotruefreaks.com Batman vs. Superman, a 13-part miniseries from Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Only at twotruefreaks.com Hey, welcome back, folks. We're going to jump right in here, taking a look at the first five episodes of the Fleischer shorts, the uh, cartoons from the early 1940s. I first saw these as a young child. I had a, a tape with you know, a blue sleeve, a VHS tape, with about probably eight or nine of these on there. Probably the first ten, which are actually considered Fleischer Studios shorts, the remainder were filmed or produced, rather, by Famous Studios, which was what the studio became after it was folded into the uh, framework of Paramount Pictures. So anyway, the uh, first short is called Superman, officially, known mostly to everybody else as the Mad Scientist. It is directed, like all of these are, by Dave Fleischer. It was written by Seymour Nidal. And all of these shorts... At least the Fleischer versions star Bud Collier as Superman. The shorts are narrated by Jackson Beck. Joan Alexander plays the role of Lois Lane, with Julian Noah in the role of Perry White. The Mad Scientist is played by Jack Mercer. This short was released to theaters on September 26, 1941. Initially, the Fleischers were reluctant to take on the assignment because it would require much more realistic designs than they were accustomed to using, and they tried to discourage the studio by saying they need a budget of about $100,000 per short, which was four times the average of a Walt Disney cartoon. However, it kind of backfired on them as Paramount executives agreed to at least half the amount, which made the Superman series the biggest budget animation series in film history. This Fleischer short had a great prologue for Superman's origin. You know, stripped to bare bones, very basic, but it gives you everything you need to know to know who the character of Superman is. So instead of me giving you that synopsis of that, I'm just going to let the show do the talking for me. And then we'll jump right into our synopsis. In the endless reaches of the universe, there once existed a planet known as Krypton, a planet that burned like a green star in the distant heavens. There, civilization was far advanced, and it brought forth a race of supermen, whose mental and physical powers were developed to the absolute peak of human perfection. But there came a day when giant quakes threatened to destroy Krypton forever. One of the planet's leading scientists, sensing the approach of doom, placed his infant son in a small rocket ship and sent it hurtling in the direction of the Earth, just as Krypton exploded. The rocket ship sped through star-studded space, landing safely on Earth with its precious burden, Krypton's sole survivor. A passing motorist found the uninjured child and took it to an orphanage. 
As the years went by and the child grew to maturity, he found himself possessed of amazing physical powers. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. People believe tall buildings at a single bound. The infant of Shripton is now the man of steel. Superman! Who best be in a position to use his amazing powers in a never-ending battle for truth and justice, Superman has assumed the disguise of Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper. Now, I don't know if I mentioned I really like that intro, and it is the first appearance of the faster-than-a-speeding-bullet introduction. And the Fleischer shows have highlighted Superman's strength when talking about him. Well, I like how the story gives you just what you need. There's the bare bones. No Kent's, just the explanation that he was taken to an orphanage and assumed the disguise of Clark Kent. And you really don't need anything more than that at this point. So into the episode proper... At the Daily Planet, editor Perry White reveals to his two best field reporters, Clark Kent and Lois Lane, that an anonymous figure has mailed another threatening note to the planet. White assigns Kent to help Lois follow up on her lead, but Lois instead insists that she'd like the chance to crack the story on her own. Lois takes off in a private plane to an undisclosed location at the top of a mountain, where the villain's secluded lair laboratory is located. He is preparing to fire his futuristic weapon until his pet bird spots Lois's aircraft and alerts him. Upon her arrival, Lois is kidnapped, bound, and gagged as the scientist boasts to her about the success of his plan, then demonstrates the weapon's power by aiming it at a bridge and destroying it. While listening on the radio, Clark and the other journalists learn of the coming disaster. As the police alert everyone to stay in their homes, instinctively, Clark steps into the storage room and changes into Superman before flying away. The mad scientist then has the beam weapon weaken the foundations of the Daily Planet skyscraper, causing it to tip over. Fortunately, Superman arrives in time and prevents the structure from crashing into the neighboring buildings or falling to the ground, successfully restoring the skyscraper to its upright position. Superman then pushes the death ray away from the base of the skyscraper and attempts to fight it back to the source, but the scientist increases the weapon's power, which also sends erratic pulses of energy Superman's way. However, Superman remains determined to fight it, persevering against the beam and punching out each pulse as they come, gradually pounding the beam back into the scientist's lab. Seeing that the beam has been overpowered, the horrified mad scientist increases power, but Superman uses that against him by twisting the weapon into a knot, preventing the beam energy from escaping, and the buildup of pressure causes the machine to overheat and explode. As the scientist's lab disintegrates with the weapon's demise, the scientist and his pet bird attempt to escape, while Superman arrives to rescue Lois. Superman then captures the scientist just before his lair explodes and takes him to jail. The scene dissolves back to the Daily Planet building, where Clark Kent and Lois report back to Perry White. She has gotten a scoop on the story of the mad scientist with thanks to Superman, and Perry commends her on doing it. Seeing she hasn't suspected a thing, Clark looks at the camera, winks and nods to the audience as the story ends. The uh, mad scientist has no real motivation to do what he's doing other than the fact that he's a mad scientist. And I don't need anything other than that. You know, he's getting back at those who laughed at him. There's been a time in just about all of our lives when we've wanted to get back at someone who's laughed at us or felt they've wronged us in some way. So that's what he's doing with his electrothanasia ray. It sounds like he's putting people under for surgery. So Lois and Clark are off to cover the story. Lois is ballsy. <laughs> She's just helps herself to a plane. You have no idea where it came from, or how she got it, or how she even knows to fly, for that matter. So, and she, she's off to the races. There she goes. She's covering the story. And then we go to meet We see the mad scientist. He's sitting in his big chair, waiting for it to be time. It becomes time. It's midnight. He's turning on his stuff here, and he's got his pet bird hanging around. 
or as Mickey Rourke would say from Iron Man 2, my bud. So, this bird cracks me up, though. He's watching the bubbles. His beak is rising with the bubbles. You know, like almost like a little kid would. And the mad scientist is paying attention to absolutely nothing other than destroying whatever it is he wants to destroy. And the bird looks out the window, and he's the one who spots the plane coming down. And he gets the mad scientist's attention. So, look. Here's the more Lois being ballsy. He, she, she, Lois does not care. She is going into danger, and she does not care. She knocks on the door, opens it up, and is pulled right in. The uh, show here makes a great use of shadows and silhouettes. And this is the first example as you don't see Lois fighting off, trying to fight off the mad scientist as he as he captures her. But you see a shadow of him and her fist pounding on him. And then as he... Then the first shot you see of him tying her up is his shadow before it pans over. And you see him telling her he's going to give her the greatest story of destruction the world has ever known. And then hits that bird again. She looks at the bird and he just goes... Nods his head three times and mocking her. The bird is the best part of the thing about this cartoon. The mad scientist has destroyed the bridge. The first bridge that this series will destroy. It is sucks to be a bridge in this show. For some reason, everybody is still at work at midnight. I don't know why. Maybe they don't have radios at home. And uh, Clark is sitting there. They all learn about how the mad scientist has destroyed the bridge with his big ray gun. And that's when he decides... This looks like a job for Superman. Then again, here's some more silhouettes here as Clark goes into the storeroom. And this is something you're going to see a lot throughout the course of the show, where you only see Clark change in shadow. And all you see is him behind the door changing his clothes. I don't remember all of these at this point. I've only viewed the first five so far. Before this, I don't know when is the uh, last time I've watched them all. But the only time I remember seeing actually seeing Clark change is during the Magnetic Telescope episode, which we'll cover next week, in which you see him changing the car, go from his suit, Clark Kent suit, to his Superman costume. But that's only from behind. So anyway, Superman flies out the window. I love the Fleischer costume. You know, especially the S-Shield with the, obviously the pentagonal framing, surrounded by the S, and the black, where we're used to seeing yellow now. This is the same shield that the comics decided to bring back when, after Convergence when they decided to put Superman in that in that awful jeans and t-shirt look that he's still wearing at the moment, as of this recording at least. Now, while everyone, including myself, hates that costume, I want that t-shirt for myself. Anyway, we're, as we go on, we're being that Lois is from the Daily Planet, the mad scientist wants to destroy the Daily Planet building, so... He shoots at the bottom, and this has got to be one of the most hysterical building sequences I have ever seen, as the building sways as if it is on a teeter-totter. This is an ab- in defiance of absolutely all laws of physics, but we didn't come to these cartoons to for physics. So Superman, it, it falls down, Superman pushes it back up, it teeters the other way, and eventually he straightens it out. It's a fun sequence to watch, even if the physics of it is a little ridiculous. At least, I don't know about other versions, but the version I watched has this hard cut from Superman being on the roof to being down on the at the base of the building getting shot by the mad scientist's ray machine. 
I don't know if that's just a problem with my DVD or if that's something throughout. Again, Superman is going to fight back against the Ray here, and he's punching an energy beam. I'm not sure that's the best way to go about it, but it looks pretty cool. Eventually, he pushes it back and captures the mad scientist, throws him in jail like a sack of old laundry, and we move on to the little coda at the end where, you know, I'm just going to play that for you now. Congratulations, Lois. That was a great scoop. Yes, Chief. Thanks to Superman. These little codas are uh, constant throughout the shorts. And the George Reeves series in the 50s would kind of pick up on this and have something similar each time. A lot of times a little line from Clark uh, getting the better of Lois or something that implies that he's Superman about all I got for this one, so we're going to move right on to The Mechanical Monster. That was released to theaters on November 21st, 1941, and like its predecessor, it, was, it starred Joan Alexander as Lois Lane and Bud Collier as Superman. Jackson Beck, again, served as the narrator. There's no credit listed for the scientist in, in this show, but that's it. Here is the synopsis. A robot flies into a scientist's secret lair and unloads a pile of cash into a vault. The robot is controlled completely from the scientist's command center, and many robots similar to it are lined up along the walls of the lair. The front page of the Daily Planet reports the mechanical monsters robbery right alongside an announcement for the display of $50 million of the world's rarest gems. Later, as Lois Lane and Clark Kent are covering the museum's exhibit for the planet, a robot lands in the street outside. The police pelt it with a machine gun fire as it marches toward the museum, but the bullets bounce harmlessly off. Museum visitors, including Clark and Lois, flee as the monster marches toward the jewels and begins loading them into an opening in its back. While Clark phones the planet from the nearest phone, Lois climbs into the monster's back just as the monster leaves the museum and takes off into the sky. Clark emerges from the booth, notices Lois is gone, and says, This is a job for Superman. He goes back to the phone booth and changes his clothes, emerging in his classic Flying above the city, Superman spots the robot and uses his X-ray vision to see Lois inside with the jewels. He lands on it and struggles to open the door in its back, only to have the scientists maneuver the robot upside down and throw him off into a power line, tangling him in the wires. As the robot is upside down, the door flies open and the jewels fall out, with Lois surviving only by hanging on for dear life until the robot flips back over. As Superman struggles to free himself from the wires, the robot arrives at the lair, but instead of jewels, the scientist finds Lois and its payload. Infuriated, he demands that she tell him where the jewels are. The next time we see her, she is bound and gagged on a platform, held over a pot of boiling metal and part of what appears to be an industrial foundry. The scientist pulls a lever which starts some machinery, gradually lowering her closer and closer to the liquid. Meanwhile, Superman frees himself from the power lines, knocks down the door to the scientist's lair, only to meet the army of robots. Numbers. Under the scientist's control, the robot admits fire from the nozzles, positioned on the lower part of their heads, encircle Superman, and pound him with their fists. Initially, the robots seem to have the upper hand, beating Superman to the ground, but Superman defeats them, sending the scientist running. When Superman catches up with him, he is holding a knife to the rope, holding Lois's platform above the molten metal, and threatens to cut it if he takes another step. Superman makes a move, the rope is cut, and Superman speeds across the room to catch Lois just in time, landing on a ledge below the pot of molten lava. The scientist then pulls a lever to dump the hot liquid on them, but Superman shields Lois with his cape, then grabs the scientist and flies from the lair to take him and Lois back to the city. The next issue of the planet describes the latest adventure that the mechanical robots are finally destroyed, the jewels are recovered, and the scientist is finally sent to prison for the thefts. In the office, Clark says, 
That's a wonderful story, Lois. Thanks, Clark. But I owe it all to Superman. All right, now, for this one, the opening was a little different. This one highlighting his X-ray vision in addition to Superman's mag magnificent physical strength. Now, you're going to notice that all these stories are very Golden Age. And the, the Golden Age comics, as opposed to the comics from today, the stories are very basic. Don't really get into the characters' motivations or why they're doing. Like, for instance, the previous episode, The Mad Scientist. If this were written today, we'd probably have a six-issue six miniseries on, on the people who laughed at The Mad Scientist. But... Again, we have another mad scientist story. This time, the guy's controlling a bunch of mechanical monsters, which are basically robots, and he's using it to steal jewelry. Honestly, more use of shadows, where the first time we see the mechanical monster, it's as a... Uh, it looks like an, an airplane until it flies uh, until it flies down to go to the jewelry store. You know, the cop, here, the cop at the outside of the place here is awfully calm and yells in, the mechanical monster! Now here's a fun uh, continuity goof. There's only one robot here, but we start with robot number 5, then it's num number 13, then it's 5, and then it's 13 again. Never at any time do we see two robots. We only see one, and we can't decide whether or not it's 5 or 13. That's just a little fun continuity gaff. Alright, meanwhile, as it's all going on outside, the cops are shooting their Tommy guns off, uh, off of the robot, and he's got to hear this. I think he has super hearing at this point. Even if he didn't, he would still hear the gunfire. I think I would. He's taking his sweet time and he goes to phone in the story while giving Lois a chance to slink away to do whatever it is she's going to do. So Clark comes out of the phone booth. Now that he notices Lois is missing, now it's a job for Superman. I guess the robbery and the gunfire before wasn't enough of a job for Superman. But now that she's missing, he's all over it. This was the first time Superman changed in the telephone booth, which would become a classic Superman trope for years to come. So eventually Lois will climb into the uh, will climb into the mechanical monster and notice when Superman chases the machine, even in the mad scientist episode, he still kinda looked like he was leaping. You know, he'd go up, kinda look assume a flying pose, and then he would peek and land and assume a landing pose right after he reached the zenith of his flight. But here kind of does the same thing, but it looks as though he's flying behind the mechanical monster. And this is the uh, first time we see him use his X-ray vision in this series. I believe it's the only time. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it's the only time we see him use his X-ray vision. And here it's manifested kind of a couple pale white beams, almost a cream color, that come out of his eyes. So remember what I said about him uh, look like he was flying. I'm not sure because he attacks the robot and falls over. He attacks the robot, which then turns over to kind of shake him. He's f knocking the jewels out. And he falls, but he doesn't seem to be able to right himself and stop in midair and fly upward again. Perhaps this was developed later. But he falls straight into the wires, and so maybe he needs to be push off something in order to fly or take off from the ground. We Eventually, he's at the uh, scientist headquarters. And I love this sequence where... Superman arrives there, but before the robots attack him, they all, in this kind of like sequence where they all stand up straight, the music kind of goes, and the robots are standing up straight. Meanwhile, Superman is standing there. Unless there's some kind of laws of engagement here, Superman has to wait for the robot to start beating the crap out of him before he does anything 
he can attack, he can destroy these things before they're even turned on. So, but it's more fun to watch Superman get fire, breathe at him, and pounded by a bunch of robots than it is to watch him crack some defenseless robots. But you know, eventually he starts fighting the robots. The sequence looks great, and honestly, what's not to like about Superman wrecking some robots? That's what I come to, this, to these cartoons for. And then eventually, Superman's got to save Lois. And my favorite shot in animation of Superman comes right here, where Superman and Lois are underneath the molten, the molten metal, and Superman extends his cape over her, and it pours off around them. That is just a magnificent shot, magnificent artwork, and I just love it. I can't get enough of iconic images like that. It kind, it brings in something. And you've seen this shot throughout Superman's history, mostly in the comics. One that comes to mind immediately, and I'm sure there are others, is in the late 80s after the Exile arc, when Superman is fighting Matrix, who has assumed his identity. Lana is trapped in a barn, and Superman does the same pose to protect her from the falling debris. Just an iconic image. Love it. I can't get enough. So that's about all I got for this one. I guess we'll move right on. The Billion Dollar Limited was released to theaters on January 9th, 1942. Again, same voice cast. Uh, this time, Julian Noah, who also provides the voice of Perry White, will provide the voice of some of the gangsters. And in this one, we'll see Superman uh, face off against some train robbers who try to steal some gold uh, before it gets to the U.S. Mint. So here's the synopsis for that. We start with an image on the front of the Daily Planet, reporting the shipment of a billion dollars of gold to the U.S. Mint. A train is being loaded with hundreds of bars of gold, guarded by several armed police officers. Further ahead, in the passenger coach, Lois Lane boards with help from Clark Kent, who says he wishes he could come, but he has another story to cover. As the last of the gold is loaded, a car a few hundred yards away turns on its lights, and the men inside put on robber's masks and arm themselves. The mysterious car follows the train. Later... A few of the robbers board the train from the back, climb to the middle, and separate several cars carrying guards from the front, leaving them stranded. Two other bank robbers attack the locomotive, throwing the engineer and a guard overboard, but falling off themselves as well. Lois, hearing the commotion, climbs to the engine's cab and is immediately machine-gunned from the robber's car, keeping pace with the train to the side. Lois grabs the machine gun and returns fire, only to have the bullets bounce harmlessly off the armored car. The train continues to speed down the track, completely out of Lois's control, and continually followed by the robbers. Station Master notices this when the train does not stop at the next station and sends out a telegraph as signalmen change the warning lights to red and for a railroad drawbridge to close. Finally, Clark hears the news report through the planet's telegraph and discreetly enters the building's storage room, changing into his Superman costume. He arrives on the scene just as the robbers have forced the train onto a track, leading to a boxcar filled with explosives. Superman manages to rip the track from the ground and guide the train back to its main course. The robbers then demolish a bridge further ahead, causing the train to fall. Superman catches the train and places it back on the track. Finally, the robbers throw a bomb into the engine's boiler. Superman manages to pull Lois out of just before the boiler explodes, and both the locomotive and its tender car derail and crash to the ground. Superman catches the lead car as it begins to roll backwards and pulls the train up the hill himself, only to have the robbers toss several cans of tear gas at him, coughing. Superman momentarily loses control but regains it, marching steadily up the hill despite the robbers' continued machine gun fire. Superman pulls the train at full speed over several miles before bringing it to a safe stop at the U.S. Mint. The Daily Planet reports the successful delivery of the money and the capture of the robbers. Reading the article, Clark says, Uncanny how Superman turns up just when you need him. I didn't even get a chance to thank him. (laughs) 
All right. Today's viewers are used to little more complete stories, deeper villains, deeper heroes, more developed characters. But you know what? These pieces are quick stories, straight up adventure, and that's all you really need. You don't need these series to be any more than really what they are. You know, no supervillains, just Superman bashing on some bank robbers. Very golden age. When Bruce Timm developed the 1992 Batman animated series, he cited these animated shorts as a big influence for the design he used in that series. And this is the first episode where I really started to see that, as especially the vehicle's designs are very closely mirrored to the Batman animated series stuff that we'll see 50 years later. Lo we see here Lois is on the train as the criminals are attacking to get to steal the gold before it gets to the mint. Lois is a, is a constant woman of action, and she's been that way since her creation. She has no qualms about getting right into the action, picking up a Tommy gun, and shooting back at the criminals, and even driving the train. At the planet, everyone is getting their information over the ticker tape, and... Clark when he reads it, Clark exclaims, it's a job for Superman. It is amazing nobody hears this. But everybody just goes about their business while Clark uh, goes into the uh, storeroom this time and does his thing. Again, he's changed in the shadows, as we'll constantly see throughout this. He goes out. Now, he's flying. In the previous two, like I said, he still appeared to be leaping. But this time, he's you can clearly see Superman is flying over the train. And then eventually he lands... Plans on it. The train goes over a cliff. Like I said during the mad scientist portion, the it sucks to be a bridge in this show. This is the second time that a bridge has been taken out. By this time, it was bombed by the uh, robbers trying to knock the train all, off the cliff. Superman saves it, which in a very weird-looking shot where he hard to describe this. The train falls off, and Super, when Superman pulls it up, it kind of, it goes back up as if it's on a roller coaster track. Physically ridiculous, similarly to the skyscraper from the. Mad scientist, but why, uh, why split hairs? And then we are treated to some shots of Superman's invulnerability as he drags the train all the way to the mint. Not much to say about that one. Straight up adventure. You know, no real issues. Story works. But as is another trope in these shorts is at the end of every episode, we see the newspaper article the next day detailing Superman's ex exploits. Superman vanishes after every appearance and the public is constantly mystified. World War II is going on, and these people are in a constant state of mystification. But, that's that. Next up is The Arctic Giant, which was released to theaters on February 26, 1942. And this time, uh, Superman will face off against a thawed-out Tyrannosaurus, which rampages through uh, Metropolis after it gets melted by, uh, by a careless technician. And here is the synopsis. We begin as the narrator tells about an arctic giant found frozen in the perfect condition in Siberia. The monster was shipped to the Museum of Natural Science, where it is kept frozen, using special refrigeration equipment. We see people looking through the giant monster in the museum. Although the nameplate in the monster's case says Tyrannosaurus, the monster does not look like an actual Tyrannosaurus. Lois is sent to do a story on the monster because it is possible that, if the ice were to thaw, the monster might still be alive. She is leaving the Daily Planet building. Want me to go over there with you? No, thanks. You'd probably faint if you saw the monster. You scare so easily. Maybe she's right, but Superman hasn't fainted yet. Lois is shown around the refrigeration plant that is responsible for keeping the monster frozen. The guy shows her the generator, then proceeds to show her the control room downstairs. She places an oil can on a shelf right next to the generator. As the guide shows Lois his control room, he explains that any rise in temperature could be dangerous. Meanwhile, the shelf that the oil can is on is vibrating from the generator's movement, 
causing the oil can to move closer and closer to the turbine. The oil can falls into the turbine, jamming it. The workers nearby turn off the equipment so they can quickly repair the damage, but they are not quick enough. We see the temperature rise from freezing to melting to danger level. The ice around the monster begins to melt. Police escort everyone out of the museum, except Lois, of course. As Lois attempts to call the Daily Planet from the museum, the monster destroys the entire building, leaving Lois in the rubble. Riot Squad shoots at the monster, but it only angers it as it begins to march toward the Riot Squad. The Riot Squad flees as the monster's foot crushes the cars. The monster marches through the city, smashing cars, trains, and buildings. Back at the planet, the chief tells Clark he'd better get on over to the museum to see if Lois is alright. Clark goes into a closet and changes into Superman, and hurries over to the museum and rescues Lois from the rubble. He tells her to go back to the Daily Planet building where she'll be safe. But Lois, always looking for a good story, doesn't listen to Superman. The monster destroys the dam, flooding the nearby homes. Superman comes and fixes it by pushing tons of rocks in to fill the gap in the dam. The monster capsizes boats and breaks through a suspension bridge. Superman then ties the bridge back together. Superman uses one of the bridge cables to trip the monster. As the monster falls, Lois stands by to take a picture. The monster's head falls right next to her and the monster tries to eat her. Lois screams. Superman flies into the monster's mouth and takes Lois out, telling her to stay put this time. Superman then pins the monster over a lamppost and the city is saved. Later at the Daily Planet, Lois and Clark are discussing the article. Lois wrote about the monster, which states that the monster is being held in Metropolis Zoo. You showed plenty of courage getting that monster story, Lois. Thanks, but where were you? Me? Oh, I must have fainted. All right, I really don't have a ton to say about this one. I'm gonna go be quite honest and say I'm not really a big fan of monster stories. You know, they are what they are. But Superman fighting a big monster really does nothing for me. But, however, that I will admit there was a great shot of an icebreaker ship going into Siberia to, re to retrieve this dinosaur. Now, the museum claims this to be a Tyrannosaurus. It doesn't really look like a Tyrannosaurus, but there we are. And... Apparently, according to news reports, the monster might be alive if it does. Then why the hell are they keeping it in the museum? It might be dangerous. So let's put it on display for everyone to come and look at it. Real smart people. Come on. And now, Lo as usual, Lois is getting the story because Clark might faint if he shows up. And she Lois is talking to this technician who stupidly left his oil can on the railing by the steps. It falls into the turbines and it's going to just screw everything up. Either Lois is or this guy's fault that this monster is even woken up. And it heats up in a damn hurry. And so, um, I guess if Captain America can survive the, the ice, so can this thing. I can only imagine Michael Crichton watched this before writing Jurassic Park. Now we're treated to some inconsistency in the animation as, in this case, Superman's not flying. He's not even leaping an eighth of a mile. He's just jumping from roof to roof. Not very consistent from the last one, where he was actually flying. There goes another bridge. Now, after Superman runs into its mouth to rescue Lois, now it's not at the museum, it's at the zoo. These people clearly... Have learned nothing. Now the final short for this week's episode is The Bulleteers, which was released to theaters on March 26, 1942, and it features Superman versus Extortionist with a super powerful rocket car. This one was written by Bill Turner and Carl Meyer. We begin as the clock strikes midnight. A strange bullet-shaped rocket car blows right through the police department, leaving an explosion in its wake. The paper the next day reports destruction of the building and the bafflement of the police. Perry White calls Lois Lane and Clark Kent into his office. Just as he's explaining the report, the sound of a loudspeaker comes into the window. The leader of the Bulleteers, as Lois later calls them, is shown announcing from his hideout atop a mountain outside of town the demands of his gang. Over the speaker, Clark, Lois, and the rest of the town hear it. 
turn over the city treasury or other municipal buildings will be next. Later, Lois asks the mayor what, what he is doing about the problem. The mayor announces he will not be swayed by criminals. That day, the policemen all over town build bunkers and gather ammunition in preparation for the bulleteers. At midnight, the gang strikes again, first destroying the town's power plant, bullets from the defending policemen bouncing harmlessly off the bullet car's sleek surface. Lights at the Daily Planet flicker on and off, and Lois off in a car to get closer to the scene, leaving Clark behind. Clark takes the opportunity to enter a nearby phone booth and don his Superman costume. The bulleteers now take aim at the city's treasury building, but Superman steps in front of them and knocks the rocket car off course. As they struggle to regain control, he leaps in the air and grabs its front, trying again to force it off course. But the bulleteers, through wild maneuvering, manage to shake him off the car to the ground below. Superman lunges to keep them from the treasury, only to arrive too late. Piles of rubble from the explosion bury him. Lois Lane arrives to scene in time to see the gang throwing bags of money into their car. She sneaks into his cockpit and tries to smash the controls with a wrench, but the gang returns, taking off with her. Superman, meanwhile, emerges from the rubble and chases after the car, grasping it by one of its retractable wings and then by its tail fins to throw it off course. As it spirals downward, he claws his way to the cockpit, rips it open, and pulls Lois and the three gangsters out. The car crashes to the ground far below. The newspaper the next day reports Superman's heroic feat and the gangsters' arrest for their rampage. Reading it, Clark remarks, Nice going, Lois. Another great scoop for you. It was easy. Thanks to Superman. All right. Well, the bulleteers want the uh, city treasury. Well, why not? I wouldn't mind having all the money in the city treasury. And they're going to hold the city for ransom, and the city is not giving in. A sensible view, as uh, most uh, municipal bodies do not negotiate with terrorists. The police are barricading, and we're getting ready for... Basically, look like they're getting ready for war. Setting up barricades, turning over cars. Lots of urban warfare going on right here. Now, the one thing that's standard for these shorts is Superman is not very proactive. He'll sit around and he'll wait for things to happen before he does anything. Similar to the mechanical monster, which took this to ridiculous degrees, where he just sat there while the police just shot at them robot for a minute to no effect at all. Personally, I like my Superman to be a little more proactive. All right, so we're five episodes in. The police have been shooting at stuff in each one, and I haven't seen them stop anything with their machine guns. May as well go home, because this is a job for Superman. And so Superman... You know, he comes out and he attacks the bullet car. And now the thing is going crazy. He punches it and it's just kind of flying around and out of control. I found that a little humorous. Lois is driving and naturally all the rubble falls on top of her. Lots of time, she is just in the way. Superman's ability to fly definitely hasn't been honed in yet. This time he's still having trouble adjusting in midair and he needs to push off solid objects. But at least this time he is... Looks like he's flying or leaping an eighth of a mile. The, uh... Unlike the last one where he just ran from rooftops. Now, I haven't really talked about the music yet, which is arranged by Sammy Timberg and supervised by Lou Fleischer. But it's good. You know, it's got that standard. If you can... What people say is if you can say the word Superman in the music, then it's good Superman music. And you can do it, you can do it here. And when Superman turns the tide of battle in his favor, the music is far more upbeat. And it, you know, it plays on the emotions. It, Brings a smile to my face whenever I hear it. Not the greatest score in the world, you know, but it's fun. And really, fun is the only thing I'm asking for. You know, like I said, the story development and the characters are not the greatest thing in the world, but you can at least get a few minutes enjoyment out of watching them. And I've enjoyed watching these first five. I hope you've enjoyed listening to me ramble on about them. And I'll be back here next week, and I'll talk about the next five shorts, the remainder of the ones produced by Fleischer Studios. And if you want to contact the show, you can reach me by email at 
manofscreen at gmail.com. Or you can leave me a review on iTunes. That'll help other people find the show. So, until next time, I'll be around. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.